All right. Uh, the book of Galatians, chapter 5, verse 22. Um, before we jump into this, what I want to kind of preface all of this is by saying is that we started several months ago a series through the book of Galatians. We've been going through the whole book. And one of the things that we've gotten to in chapter 5 is we got to this portion of Scripture, which is uh, uh, called the fruit of the Spirit. It's a passage, I would say, or a section of Scripture, I would say, that a lot of us are very familiar with. Uh, if you have a grandma, she probably has a needle stitch, needlework thing over the mantle of her fireplace with the fruit of the Spirit on it. Uh, your mom probably has a coffee mug she bought at the Parable or some other uh, Christian store that has fruit of the Spirit on it. Or if you're from the 80s and you bought cheesy Christian shirts, you probably still have one of those old ones that has like fruit on it and it says fruit of the Spirit or something like that. Um, fruit of the Spirit is something that Christians love to market because it's just simply cheesy. So, but what we're going to try to do and it sells. What we're going to try to do is unpackage what the fruit of the Spirit is. And one of the things that we try to understand is that even bigger and beyond just simply being a passage or a scripture, uh, this great passage of the fruit of the Spirit are actually um, identification marks of God himself. They are the characteristics of God himself. So when Paul will say something like this, uh, because what a Christian is, is a Christian is somebody who's been redeemed. God has purchased him or brought him into a right relationship with himself. As a result of that, the Holy Spirit has taken up residency inside of our lives, and so therefore our lives become changed like God. God lives in us. God's characteristic traits uh, are at work inside of us, and they begin to work themselves outside of us, um, in our lives, through our lives, towards other people. So in other words, um, let me, what we've been saying from the very beginning is that religion comes along and basically imposes moralistic behavior on us, all right? One of the reasons why sometimes religion can be associated with moralism as opposed to immoralism or immorality is because uh, Christianity recognizes there are various good elements as to living a good life, acting good, treating people with kindness and dignity and value and respect. So these are characteristic traits that we would value. But religion comes along and says, you need to be loving. And if you're not loving, churches are really good at guilting people into love by preaching sermons, by telling you how poorly you are already currently loving people. In other words, at the end of the sermon, you feel really bad because you're not loving properly, so therefore you rededicate your life again to God, maybe the eighth time in a row, and you're ready to love afresh again. Or, for example, patience. You're not very patient. We just looked at this last week. The preacher's really good at manipulating words to make you feel really bad because you're not patient. God's patient. You're not. God's really good. You're a sinner. You should really feel bad about that. And so therefore, what ends up happening is uh, good moralistic behavior is imposed upon you. And so therefore, one of two things happens as the result of religion or moralistic uh, teaching is either A, you will try really hard to be loving, to be kind, to be patient, and you will end up failing, and then you'll feel really bad, and then you'll come back to church, and then you'll rededicate yourself again to God, and then next week you'll do that again to God, and again, over and over and over again, and you keep going in this endless cycle because you keep looking at yourself and realizing how poorly you do, and you'll feel really bad. Uh, those type of people never find joy. They never find themselves living uh, with great gratitude in their heart because they're always living in the deficit. The other opposite end is you will think you're being loving, you will think you're being joyful, you will think you're being full of patience, but in reality, 
uh, in some ways, you will actually just becoming more prideful and arrogant. And one of the best ways to identify if this is you is you'll look at other people that aren't patient, and you'll be like, what an idiot. They're not patient like me. Or I can't believe they said that. They're not being loving like me. Right? So you will think of yourself as the standard of love or the standard of patience or the standard of peace, and then you will degrade or put down or make fun of or think in a very derogatory manner towards other people that aren't like you, who is the paradigm of righteousness, right? That's what we do. So you will either become prideful or you will find yourself living in despair. That's what moralistic religion does. At the end of the day, it doesn't change you. You're not a different person. <clears throat> you don't love God anymore. You don't love people anymore. In fact, let me say this. People who live in moralistic religion oftentimes actually find themselves very fearful of God. You don't want to run to God because you're very afraid of him because you realize he might really truly find you out. But the gospel, on the other hand, what the gospel does is it actually changes us inside. What God does is he says, Here's what I've done for you. I've been loving even though you've not loved me back. I've been patient with you even though you've tried and taxed my patience time and time again. I've been kind to you even though you've never reciprocated kindness back to me or even shown the least bit of gratitude to me. I've just consistently shown kindness to you. God says, this is what I've done for you. This is the good news or the gospel that I've done and I've accomplished for you. And to take it a step further, God says, here's what I'll do. I will take your old heart, your old heart that's inside of you, that's prone towards deception, that's prone towards constant anxiety because of sin, that's prone towards unloving attitudes, unloving actions towards other people. And God says, I will remove that old heart of stone and I will put a new heart inside of you, a heart that's like mine. So the gospel actually changes us from the inside out. So we become loving, not because we're being yelled at for an hour by a preacher telling us how bad we're being, but we become loving because we're reminded of what God did for us. That's how we're truly changed. Moralistic religion doesn't change us. It condemns us when we fail. It makes us feel bad because we're not good, but the gospel truly changes us. That's what Paul's talking about. The word that Paul uses again to identify this, it's the fruit of the Spirit. It's an actual fruit that comes naturally out of the life and the heart of God or the experience of God living in the life of an individual. That's where we've been. So we've been taking every week, looking at these various fruit of the Spirit, beginning with love and joy, peace, patience. Today we're taking a look at the very word kindness, trying to understand what the word kindness is. So with that, what I want to do right now is I want to read the little passage of scripture, and then we're going, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get to work on this big word. It's a very broad word. Um, I'm not going to just look at one particular verse and kind of stem off of that. Um, Paul doesn't unpack the word kindness very much. In Galatians, there's other times and other passages or another uh, works that Paul has written where he unpacks the word kindness. So we'll look to some of those other passages and other books that Paul has written to try to understand what kindness is. Um, but we're going to kind of be hopping all over the place. So if you guys don't have a Bible, make sure you have one. We have some in the back. Please feel free to borrow one. Keep it if you need it, if you don't own one. Uh, it's our gift to you. But we're going to be taking a look at a lot of different passages, trying to understand, trying to unpack 
really the kindness of God. And in turn, of when we understand that, then that kindness begins to work its way out in and through our lives, beyond our lives, to other people. So let's read the passage, and then I'll pray, and then we'll get to work on this. Passage basically says this, Galatians, Galatians chapter 5, 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, and kindness. That's the one word that we're going to be taking a look at today, kindness. God, we ask you right now that you would help us to understand what this means. God, just open our eyes. Uh, we confess that in a, in a lot of ways, Lord, we're not kind. Um, we're not always kind people. We're not kind to those that show us great kindness. Oftentimes, God, we assume kindness from other people. And when it doesn't come, then we retaliate. We become angry. We become vindictive. And Lord, we need to be able to catch a glimpse of who you are as you're a kind God. And you've demonstrated a great kindness to us. And so, Lord, we ask you right now that you would help us just to understand what that looks like and what that means in our lives and beyond us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, the Greek word that Paul uses, uh, it's kind of an interesting word, I'll say it, um, it's the Greek word krestotis, um, reason why it's, it's an important Greek word, I'll, I'll get to that in a second here, um, and it's not because I know Greek, it's because I have really good Bible software, uh, but the word krestotis is actually a very, very interesting word because it appears a lot throughout the uh, New Testament, but it also appears in various ways, but also appears a lot in what's called the Septuagint, and the Septuagint was the uh, ancient Hebrew Bible uh, the Old Testament during the time of Jesus, and it was translated into the Greek. So they took the Hebrew Bible and translated it into Greek. So all these uh, old Hebrew words that would have been uh, originally known by those who spoke Hebrew, um, they would have read the word Christotis um, in various passages that some of us are familiar with. Um, it's, a, it's a big word that does not have a very exact or very easy translation into the English. So here's a couple ways in which uh, it can be identified. It could mean like decent, like good decent. He's a decent person. Um, honest, uh, morally upright or good. Um, like a friend or someone who's gentle or kind. Someone that has a, has a pleasant countenance. Um, I actually also read that um, it was also a name that was used um, first century. People actually called their kids Christotis. Now, I have no idea if that was like a girl or a boy. It's kind of one of those names that you have no idea. You're know, like Pat, you know, and uh, can go both ways. But um, anyways, Christotis, it was a name because I, I think it was the idea. Maybe some kids was born, and rather than crying, they just look really nice. They're like, we're going to call that kid Christotis. So it was a name that was very common in the first century. Um, and ironically, also, it was a word that was used to identify, according to the uh, philosophers, they used this particular word and said, um, under no circumstances um, is Christotis ever to be associated with the gods. That'll play into the text. So just hold on to that thought, and we'll get to that in a moment here. But um, the early philosophers looked at this word Christotis, kindness, generosity, uh, friendship, however you want to look at it. They said the, the gods don't operate within the realm of Christotis. They just, that's not how they work. So with that being said, what I want to try to do is I want to try to understand how Paul uses this or how the rest of the Bible, I should say, uses this word uh, throughout the Bible and different verses that try to identify various uh, levels of God's kindness and generosity throughout the Bible. Again, another way to try to understand this word, maybe in a more simplistic way uh, that we can look at it maybe in our modern context, would be the idea of friendship. 
Someone who is a friend, someone who devotes himself to somebody else, someone who is kind and full of generosity. And, you know, we know that true friends, true good friends are not always people that are necessarily expecting someone, something in return or expecting some sort of friendship in return. It's those people that are able to be friends even when they've been slandered or even in light of um, incongruities in the relationship that they still hold on to being a good friend, good solid friend, even though the other friend or the other party is not able to really give much back. That's like really good friendship. Those are all the ideas that are sort of uh, carried over in this particular uh, Greek word, krestotis. Uh, take a look at in the Bible. There's at least two ways in which we're going to try to identify kindness or ways in which we're going to sort of distinguish kindness. We'll break it down into two different ways. One, I'm just going to describe it as a general kindness. There's a general way by which God demonstrates kindness to all people, irregardless of race, background, skin tone, or even religion, or even whether or not they show appreciation to God or whether or not they even curse God outrightly. God still nonetheless shows this sense of crestotis, this sense of kindness, this sense of friendliness, even towards the vilest, the most evil, uh, the most wicked of uh, enemies. And it's a very interesting thing to just kind of look at and understanding in this very general way. Some scholars might describe this as common grace, that God just shows grace in a very general, common way to all people. Take a look at Psalm 65, verse 9 says this. You visit the earth with water, and you greatly enrich it. And the river of God is full of water, and you provide their grain. So you have, pre- so you have prepared it. You water its furrows abundantly, setting its ridges, softening it with showers, and blessing it, its growth. You, grow, you crown the year with your bounty. The pastures in the wilderness overflow, and the hills gird themselves with joy, and the meadows clothe themselves with flocks, and valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout, and they sing together with joy. I love this picture, because really it's this idea of just God just saying, look, um, or the psalmist identifying the fact that God just, he just demonstrates great kindness over all things, and everybody, and anybody living in that particular area, enjoy Uh, the beauty of the green grass or the beauty of the flocks or the herds on the side of the hill. A lot of ways, I kind of think about this. We live, obviously, in a very beautiful place. And accordingly to uh, several magazines, I think USA Today, I was even on an airplane this past week, and I was reading this big, massive article. I was flying from St. Louis, obviously, to, uh, to Phoenix, and they had this article on here. But they had the same article on Phoenix all the way to Texas, which is where I went to go visit some friends of ours that uh, used to be part of this church or involved in the ministry out there. And uh, this big, massive, like 25-page article on St. Louis, the happiest place in, in America, all right? Isn't that good? It's pretty sweet, huh? Anyways, um, one of the things we, we, do, we do, we walk outside, we're like, this place is absolutely beautiful. And the, the, the grass is green, and you know, there's all sorts of life around everywhere. You go to the beach, it's like absolutely beautiful. The water's really blue. It's just, everything's amazing. You realize we live in an absolutely beautiful place. And the Old Testament writers would have looked at this and just thought, this is God's general kindness being displayed for all. It doesn't matter who they are, that every human being on the planet gets a snapshot in some ways, even gets a trailer, gets to view this trailer. That every human being, whether they're sinner or saint, enjoys that absolutely incredible moment when the child's head first comes out of the wife, all right, or is born into the world, or they hear the first cry of their child. They they enjoy those moments 
the Bible's going to say that all of these are, are various ways by which God just shows general kindness to all humanity. Psalm 145, verse 3 through 9 says this, The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. Again, the emphasis upon this very general, meaning it's broad. Um, take a look at Luke chapter 6, 35. This verse, um, every time I read it, absolutely floors me. You'll see why in a second here. Here's what he says. Jesus writing this, or Jesus speaking this, and his uh, disciples writing this down, here's what he said. Love your enemies, and do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return. That alone is radically countercultural. Love your enemies? <laughs> I mean, that's just not how we operate. We typically think, retaliate against your enemies, right? Uh, you know, if someone hurts me, I hurt them back. Or even though I may not do something physically against somebody else, some, some of the ways in which we sometimes hurt people or try to uh, retaliate with people, we're just like, you know what, I've forgiven him, but I don't ever want to talk to him again. Well, that's another form of retaliation. You know that? You're actually punishing them by saying, I refuse to give my presence to them. They're not worthy of me. That's a form of retaliation. So you really have not forgiven. You've just not been very aggressive, all right? And, and God's saying, no, 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 love your enemies. Love your enemies, and he says, do good and lend without expecting nothing in return. And he says, and you will have great reward, and you will be the sons of the Most High God. And he goes on to say this radical verse right here. And he says, and he, for he is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. Think about this. Jesus himself, he's saying, you want to know about God? Want to know what God's like? Or in a lot of ways, what God, and how God is radically unlike us, or you, should say? Is that God is actually kind and he shows kindness, not only to those that are just ungrateful. I mean, it's one thing to actually give and show gratitude to somebody, or do something to somebody that's not to show gratitude, all right? Uh, you can fill in the blank and put kids right there, all right? You're an adult, you got kids, you know what that means, right? You give to kids sometimes, and you hope to have, like, hey, thank you for lunch, or thanks for washing the dishes, or thanks for, you know, cleaning the clothes, whatever. Or you can insert husband, all right? All right? You can insert husband right there. Um, wives, right, here's for you, is that how many times you do something for somebody else and you never get a thank you. Hey, thanks for washing these, you know, sheets and putting them on the bed. It's amazing. All right, I'm preaching to myself right now. And the point of the matter is, is that it's one thing to show kindness to somebody that's ungrateful. And we, in a lot of ways, we do that a lot, especially if you're in that relationship of being a parent or being married. But it's another thing to show kindness to somebody that's evil that's what jesus is saying is that god actually shows kindness to people that are not just simply ungrateful but also to people that are actually evil and the distinction is is that you can be somebody that god shows kindness to and you just don't say thank you you don't walk outside and you see the beauty of the grass you just like, god thank you it's beautiful out here thank you for the warm weather god thank you for the rain we need a little bit of rain god thank you for creation Thank you for everything you've given. You, that, that's one element. But to the opposite, the people that are evil are those that if you were to give them something, they actually take what you've given them and use it against you. We've said this before. This is not just simply undeserved grace. It's ill-deserved grace. It's God actually giving something to somebody who then takes that something that's a good gift from the creator God and then uses it back against God to defame him or to seek to dethrone him. That's what we do. And you, you want to know what God's like? God shows unbelievable kindness 
to all. Regardless of race, culture, religion, anything. You know how radically profound that is? We don't love like that. We say stuff like this, we're like, I'll, I'll, I'll love if they become a Christian. Like, I'll love them if they go to church, man, then I'll hang with them. Or I'll love them if they give back to me, or I'll love them if somehow there's something in it for me, or, some, or if, if, if they can't give back to me, at least if somebody notices that I'm doing this kind thing for them, then I'll give. That's just not how God works. I, I mean, I say that on, on one level to just say, man, that humbles us, but on another hand, to kind of let that be the black backdrop by which the glory of God's goodness shines. We marvel in that. Man, when you recognize how good God is, even in spite of the evil that we are, and in spite of the ungratitude that we have towards God, it's amazing. And he keeps giving, keeps showing kindness. So on a very general level, God shows kindness. On a special level, God shows kindness. And what I mean by that is take, for example, Psalm 34, verse 8. He says, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. So in this psalm, he's kind of getting a little bit more specific, that there is a specific type of kindness that God demonstrates. And he says, apparently this kindness is really understood through tasting God, through seeing who God is, and those who take refuge in God. Let me give you an example. You can be somebody that has received God's goodness and kindness, even though you may not know it, even though you may not be somebody that's giving God gratitude back or thankfulness back to him, even though you may be someone that's actually abusing God's kindness and good be- God, God's good out, towards you in a way that's sort of manipulating them for your own end, for your own gain, for your own glory. But at the end of the day, what you need to understand is that there are those that recognize God's goodness and take great delight in that. Uh, these would be, you know, you'd call it people that follow God. In New Testament, we call them Christians, people who have recognized God's kindness and respond to God's kindness by loving God back, by loving him, to, uh, by re- responding to God's initiation. That's the idea. And so God has a special kindness that's, uh, in other words, unveiled or revealed to those that understand him. And the psalmist is going to describe it. It's like tasting and seeing that God's good. All right? I just got back this past week, like I said, from Texas. And aside from a lot of things that are very unique and interesting about Texas, one of the most amazing things that Texas has going for it is, is barbecue. All right? I mean, I mean barbecue, that, that's really good. That's definitely a pro in the realm of Texas. It was awesome. I mean, Texas barbecue was great. It's a real blessing, all right? I, I, was, I was rejoicing in Jesus and my salvation, being able to enjoy good down-home uh, Texas barbecue. And uh, the reality is, is that God has given all these things and for us to delight in him through these things. And the reality is there's things that you are, you, you're never really gonna fully understand or appreciate it unless you taste it. One of the things that we had one day, and I've always heard about like Texas sweet tea. It's like, you know, maybe you've even seen it like in the grocery stores, like buy that little Texas sweet tea thing and I'm you know, a big can or whatever. Th- that's not sweet tea, all right? I tasted sweet tea. And that thing's like not sweet compared to the sweet tea that I had. Now, I can try to describe to you what sweet tea is like. And you'll be like, okay, I get it, I get it. And unless you truly taste it, you don't get it, all right? Bad metaphor, shifting metaphors. How about that chocolate cake at Costco? You know what I'm talking about? It's like double, triple, quadruple, throw me down cardiac arrest cake. I don't know what it is, but it's really good. It's really good. And the reality is, if you've never tasted that cake, 
I can sit here and tell you all day long about how rich it is and how creamy it is and the chocolate like just melts in your mouth and you just smell it and you just, it's so good. You can just feel your blood pressure rising because it's just, you know it's not good for you, but you just, you, you know, you just want to indulge in it because it's like really, like you can almost eat the whole thing. It's that good. And I can tell you about it all that I want. And unless you actually grab the fork or just went caveman style or Texas style and just started eating it, then you, you wouldn't know how good it is. That's what the psalmist is saying about God. There is a kindness, a depth, a beauty of God that can really only be known by tasting him. And that's what he says. The second way that we see the special kindness uh, scene is, for example, in Ephesians. Uh, Paul writes about this. He says, in the coming ages, he will show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your doing. It's a gift of God. First thing, um, what Paul wants us to understand is that there will come a day. And this is why, one of the reasons why he says the ages to come. This is not Paul just simply saying, look, uh, you are on a very quick leash, and at some point around 70 years old, you're going to die. It's going to be over. Everything's finished. This is Paul saying, look, there's life beyond this life that keeps going, that keeps moving. It's this immeasurable age to age that's yet to come. And it's matched with the immeasurable riches of God's grace and kindness demonstrated to you. And, and God's basically saying there's, there's a depth of his riches and his kindness that will be unfolded to God's people. They'll see it. Now, we don't know exactly what that is. I mean, we get little glimpses and maybe little hints of that here and there. But here's the thought that I think of. It's just purely speculation. But when I think of maybe what Paul may be hinting at is this sense of in this life, we would have to all agree that there are levels by which oftentimes we suffer. We go through great pain, great difficulties in this life, great losses. As Puritans used to say, the losses and the crosses of following Jesus. Sometimes a lot of difficulties that associate and go on in our lives. A lot of things that we find that are working against us in this life that are painful and hard. And there's a lot of questions that, that are basically provoked because of that. We don't know a lot of things. We don't know why a lot of things happen. And part of me wonders if part of these unfolding riches of God's kindness that will be one day revealed and unveiled to us in the ages to come, if, if it, I wonder if it has something to do with the fact that one day God will allow us to meet people that our lives have affected that we didn't even know we affected. Maybe because of the suffering that we've gone through, maybe because of the difficulties that we had happened to us, that we never even knew that our lives had some sort of very profound effect upon their life, changing them, transforming them in ways in which God just used our lives way beyond our even understanding of these things to magnify his goodness, his greatness, his power. These are all levels of God's kindness. I'll give you a quick example of this. Uh, yesterday I took my daughters to go see that, you know, the movie um, Soul Surfer. Uh, it's about Bethany, Bethany uh, Hamilton. And it's about this, uh, this girl who, you know, she was out surfing. She gets her arm bit off by this shark. And it's a horrible situation. And there's sort of this element in the story which she wrestles with in, at one point in, her, in that moment of like, why did this happen? Obviously, after she's gone through a little bit of surgery and whatnot, she's like, why did this happen? 
And then what happens later on in the story, she starts realizing she's getting this enormous amount of mail coming in from all, literally all around the country, all, all around the world. People saying, you know, I've seen you, I've watched you, you inspire me, you transform me. The fact that you trust in Jesus has changed my life. All these radical things that she had no idea she suffered with, she struggled with. But the reality is, is in that movie, as well as even in other glimpses or snapshots of situations like that, sometimes God allows us to see how our lives affect other people. In other words, it's a part of his kindness, him showing us ways by which his grace is using our pain, our suffering, our hardships to radically magnify his name and transform lives of other people. Sometimes he shows us those little snapshots. Most of the time, he doesn't. And I wonder if part of the constant, eternal outpouring of his kindness and grace may not take place one day when we get to see him face to face. Gathered with all the saints and the people, maybe we've never even met before, but from literally all around the world, from even other time periods, we've never even met there in the presence of King Jesus as we just rehearse these unbelievable stories of God's kindness, favor, and grace forever. I don't think that will ever grow old. Whenever we hear stories of people's lives radically, radically suffering, but also at the same time radically being redeemed, radically transforming other people's lives, those stories never get old. That's why we always write new movies about them or write new books about them. It's because that never grows old. That's a narrative that's literally rooted in God himself and it never grows old in our culture. Part of his kindness, his special kindness. Take a look at the last verse that we'll take a look at here before we jump on. As we also see this other great verse in Titus, uh, Paul writes this. He says, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient. We were led astray. We were slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, uh, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and the loving kindness of our God and Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works that we've done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of the regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Christ Jesus, our Savior. First thing I noticed really clearly is that Paul is actually saying that the Trinity himself is actually working together. God working through Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit working together collectively, collaboratively to save you, to transform you, to change you. To take you from being people that were hated by others and hated other people, meaning he didn't know what Christotis was. You didn't understand it. You didn't live according to it. This virtue that we look at in other people and we admire from a distance, this reality when we see other people being kind and showing loving kindness to other people, we just we sit back at a distance where we're like, man, I admire that person. They're able to just bless even though they're being cursed. They're able to just show kindness even though other people are being rude and scorning them. There's something profound about that. Paul's saying, that was never you guys. In fact, quite to the opposite. But there was one who was demonstrated great kindness. God demonstrated this Christotis to you even when you least deserved it. To the Trinity himself working together to redeem and restore you. Powerful. So, one of the things that we notice very quickly, we summarize, is we realize that, first of all, kindness in a very general way, something that God does, but also kindness in a very specific way, these are all parts of this idea, this larger whole of, of kindness as is biblically identified. 
And again, you can sort of summarize it this way, that this is God establishing friendship, God seeking to establish friendship, friendship to people that are at enmity with him, God seeking to go out of his way to establish friendship with him. At the same time, God uh, seeking to develop even deeper friendship with those that, that he's in covenant with, that he's in relationship with. At the same time, we would look at this element of friendship and say, friendship is good. In fact, sociologists will tell you that friendship is humanizing. It's what makes us human. To not have friends, to be an enemy of people, to constantly be a nag or constantly be pushing people away or to constantly be self-destructive in a way where you're destructing other destroying other people is actually dehumanizing. It's less than human. It's more on the, on the level of being an animal than it is being a human, an image bearer of God. God created us for relationship, for friendship. And every other friendship that we have in this life really, at the end of the day, is intended to point to the great friendship that God designed us to have with himself. So this is a question. Really, what does it take to establish true friendship? What are true friendships really made of? Three things. Okay, the first thing that we see is it's made of vulnerability. You got to know what vulnerability is. And so here's kind of a, a, the sense. It's, it's pain is not going to be a hindrance. It's sort of this mentality, this idea that says, I will not allow pain to hinder me from being your friend. The reality is, is that all friendships require a very deep level of vulnerability, where you've got to make yourself vulnerable. Allow yourself to be weak. It's one of the very reasons why a lot of people don't have deep friendships. Sometimes it's because when you have been in vulnerable positions before, You've been hurt. Maybe it's because you've been divorced, or you've been in a boyfriend-girlfriend relationship, you broke up and it was painful, or you had relationships with other people in the past, maybe family members, people that had let you down or hurt you. Maybe you've been in a church before and you were involved, uh, there's a pastor or a leader or somebody in your life, a Bible study leader that deeply hurt you and wounded you and uh, injured you. You opened yourself up to them. You became very vulnerable to them at one point in your life and they deeply wounded you, and now your reaction is to sort of pull away, to recoil, to close up, and you no longer allow yourself to become vulnerable. It's a bad place to be. Uh, the people that we went to go visit this past week, good friends of ours, Eli and Mandy, um, he just got a brand new dog. It's kind of this, uh, it's kind of called a Razorback, and apparently um, this type of dog, if it's not shown love and affection, like the first two months, then it actually kind of goes into this really crazy uh, tailspin where it becomes very antisocial. It's very interesting uh, that this particular dog that he got was the runt, meaning no one paid any attention to it. It was just literally ignored. Beautiful dog. Beautiful dog. And they got it for super cheap because it was totally antisocial. It's true. You walk up to the dog, and it literally paces around in this circle, constant circle, going around, around, and around. It won't look at you in the eye. It won't uh, engage with you if you try to walk up to it. It's not aggressive. It has no aggression in it whatsoever. I mean, you can walk up to it, and it just, it, it won't growl. It won't bite or anything like that. It just, it starts going in this pace constantly. It's very nervous. But his hope is to somehow, through love, to redeem it, to restore it, to bring it back to a place where the dog actually can become sort of a social dog again. But the interesting reality is, is you know, I asked him, I said, you know, the, the dog has never shown vulnerability yet, huh? He goes, not once. He goes, I will rejoice in the day where it finally gets on his back and puts his legs up and shows him it goes to that vulnerable state. That day will be the day that that dog finally has arrived. It's vulnerability. A lot of us, will, we refuse to show vulnerability because we're so afraid to be hurt. Let me say this real quick as a side note. If you're married, 
if one day you hope to be married, if you're in a relationship today, <laughs> some of you are like, does he really have to talk about this? Yeah, um, I do. Um, the reality is, is that if you're not vulnerable with each other, if you're not vulnerable with each other, your, your, your marriage is literally um, is on life support. I guarantee it. I, I, if, if you can't learn to be vulnerable in a place whereby you open your heart up to allow others to come in and ultimately even allow others to potentially harm or hurt you. That's not the goal. But that's what vulnerability does. It allows you, it brings you in this place whereby you're vulnerable. The second thing that we notice about relationships or friendships is it also involves transparency. And this is the idea where shame is not a hindrance. Whereby you're transparent, whereby you realize that even though there may be things in your life, things that you've done that you're very, very shamed or shameful of and shameful because of, there's a tendency for us to hide those things and to not allow ourselves to get into relationship with other people because we're very ashamed. At the end of the day, what we're deeply concerned about is that if I really let my true color shown, if I really let people see who I truly am, they won't like me. They'll reject me. I may get fired. My spouse might leave me. My kids might hate me. Let me tell you something. Here's where we're at as a country in America today, people in America. Do you know that America has more opportunities at social connectivity than ever before in our history? But do you also know that America, American people, are more in debt, more obese, more addicted, more medicated than, than any other group of people in this country's history. Do you know that? And somewhere along the lines, we have neglected or removed ourselves from the reality of being vulnerable and allowing ourselves to be hurt and we've also removed ourselves from the reality of transparency because we're so riddled with shame. But here's the problem. Because we feel the pain, we feel the difficulty, we feel the shame, we feel the hardship, we feel all of the effects of sin and all of the things that are a part of our lives that we deal with, that we work through, that we're constantly just feeling frustrated over. Oftentimes what we try to do is we turn to these senses of trying to numb these things. So we numb the pain. We numb the grief. We numb the guilt. We numb all of these things. But here's the problem. Sociologists have literally, they've done works on this. So there's been a lot of scientific research over the past five to ten years to absolutely prove this. They've proven that when you numb the grief and the pain and the hurt and the guilt, you also numb the joy and the peace and the love, and the gratitude. In short, you become less than human. In short, even further, you don't live. It takes an awful lot of energy to cover up shame, to cover up grief, to keep yourself from being vulnerable, to keep yourself from being transparent, to hide, to sit behind the mask, to constantly try to ask yourself, what person should I be today in this context, in this place, in the work spot, in front of church, in front of my family, in front of my spouse? And the gospel comes in and says, you don't need to wear the masks. You can take them off. 
because there is one who loves you regardless who you are behind it. But we're so afraid to let go. We're so afraid to let go. So friendship not only involves vulnerability, saying I'm not going to let pain be a hindrance. It involves transparency, saying I'm not going to let shame be a hindrance. It also involves sacrifice, where you say I'm not going to let cost be a hindrance. Any relationship you've ever been involved in, it's very costly, very costly. You open yourself up to people, you will pay. You will pay. I'm serious. It doesn't matter who you are. You want to get married someday? Please understand this. There will be prices you will pay. There will be levels of compromises that you will have to pay. That's not bad payment. It's not a bad price. It can be, but it's not necessarily bad. Because what you're actually doing is you're paying a price that says, there's a greater love that I'm willing to pay this price for. Technically, that's the idea at least. There's sacrifice that gets paid. And a lot of people are unwilling to sacrifice but here's what Proverbs 17, 17 says, that a friend loves at all times. A friend loves at all times. He's willing to make the sacrifice. Um, Proverbs 18, 24 says this, one who is unreliable, or one who has unreliable friends soon comes to ruin, but there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. John 15, 13, Jesus himself said this, greater love is no one than this, than that someone would lay down his life for his friends. It's absolutely amazing. Jesus himself says, look, you'll identify your best friends by those who are willing to pay the ultimate sacrifices for you. So, here's the reality. Okay, we've got to this place now where we can look at ourselves and be like, ah, man, I don't know if I'm a friend that like that. I don't know if I show kindness like that. I mean, we can, we can almost finish things up right now and be like, okay, God's kind, I'm not, and uh, yeah, I don't know where to go from here. But that's not where we're gonna leave you because at the end of the day, what we wanna do is we wanna find out how do we get the power how do we understand? How do we find something, a motor, a motivator to change us, to propel us, to transform us? Again, we're not looking into some sort of religious oppression or religious um, something being imposed upon you by religious duty or moral by saying, okay, you guys, just be kind because God's kind. Go do the best you can later, all right? That's, that's, that doesn't change you. You might walk out of here and just try to be nice to people, but that's not being kind. That's not in your heart saying, I want to do this because I'm changed because of something that's happened to me. So how does this transform? Let me first of all say something real quick about the types of friends that most of us in this culture have. All right, There's two different types of friendships that most of us have. All right, The first of which is I'm going to basically identify it as this. That we have a colleague network. What I mean by this by a network of colleagues or a colleague network, is that these are people that are in your life that you, uh, they're your peers at school, they're people that say if you own a business or you work with other people, these are people you kind of rub shoulders with, you schmooze with, you go out and have a drink after work with, you talk business with them, you make deals with them. These are people that maybe as peers you kind of bounce ideas off of each other in order to make your work even better, to advance even more. This is your colleague network. You need these. It's important in a lot of ways for a lot of people's lives and a lot of people's careers. But the second type of relationship that we have, I'm going to call a social network. 
all right? Uh, this is obviously made popular, popular through things like Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, all these other types of things. But the reality is that you need to understand is that you may look at your life and be like, oh, this is amazing. I got like 1,200 friends. No, you don't. You don't have 1,200 friends. You don't even have 300 friends. You're like, I got 298. You don't, all right? You really don't. Those are, those are fans, maybe at best, all right? In your social network or in your colleague network, you're not going to sit down with these people and be vulnerable with them. You're not going to sit down with these people and allow yourself to be transparent, to let them see you for who you truly are. That could be devastating to your career. Do you understand that? Absolutely destructive to your career. If there are things that you're doing in your life in a business or in a corporation, you sit down with another colleague and you're transparent with them about certain things that may likely get you fired, you would never be transparent with that person. So you live a duplicitous lifestyle with them. You never let light in. You just keep the darkness secure. Those aren't true friends. And that's the way that you live. You're not really living. God designed us to be in friendships, deep friendships, whereby we walk in the light, whereby we're transparent. But see, here's the question. How do we get to that? How do we become kind? How do we become people that are friendly towards other people? Especially if someone like the early philosophers, the great philosopher I was referencing earlier was Aristotle. He actually said, and he taught very clearly and emphatically, that from the pantheon of gods, that no god could ever be Christotis. No god. It was, it was completely uncharacteristic of the gods to become friendly or to become charitable or become kind. And the reason why Aristotle said this, because he's a really bright guy, a brilliant guy, he basically looked at this and said, it's impossible. Gods don't become vulnerable. Gods always be strong. Gods never become weak. Gods never bring themselves into a place whereby they can be injured. It's incompatible with the gods. Gods never allow themselves to become vulnerable in those ways or allow themselves to be brought into various levels whereby they're transparent, where they let themselves be seen for truly who they are or allow themselves to be bearing any type of shame or feeling that type of shame. Gods just don't do that. And finally, first and foremost, gods would never, ever make sacrifices for human beings. Human beings make sacrifices to the gods. Gods never make sacrifices for people. And that's where Paul comes in. He says, actually, it's totally wrong. Because there is a God, our God, who did make himself vulnerable. How much more vulnerable can God be? He was born a baby, a child. Is there anything on the planet more vulnerable than an infant, newly born? Absolutely, totally dependent upon somebody else to care and attend for its complete needs. God became vulnerable. God became in this place where he allowed himself to become weak. And he allowed himself not to be shamed because of sin that he did, but instead he himself was shamed. He was mocked because we're told that Jesus bore our sins. Sin is what leads to shame. Jesus never sinned, but Jesus was a sin bearer. He bore our sin and thus bore our shame. 
And finally, you talk about sacrifice. The greatest sacrifice of all time was what God did on behalf of us. Do you understand the kindness of God was radically unfolded for us through the cross, where God himself became vulnerable, where God himself took sacrifice, where God himself became transparent. Talk about a friend. This is why Jesus would say to his disciples, I call you my friends today. Where he would go on to say, greater love is no man than this, than that one would lay down his life for his friends. Aristotle, respectively, was wrong. That God, through the cross, chose to bring enemies and the ungrateful back into friendship with himself. When you realize that, when you understand how deep God's love and kindness and the extension of friendship that he's done to you, when you let that grab your heart, it changes you in at least two different ways. Two different ways. The first way is you're able to come boldly and humbly into God's presence. This is why Paul's gonna say in Romans later on, He says, it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It's not the fact that God's holding a a sword over our heads saying, repent or I kill you. It's God saying, I poured out my wrath on my son. Do you see my kindness? Do you see what I've done on your behalf? Now come to me. Some of you need to know this because some of you live your life every day feeling as if God does not like you. Maybe he puts up with you, but he doesn't like you. Maybe he deals with you, but he certainly is not going to be kind to you. What you need to see is you need to see God's kindness, not in just a very general way, but in a very specific way through Jesus. God demonstrates kindness to you. The second thing that does is it humbles us because we realize we, we have no ground on which to stand. We can't boast in that. We can't look at other people of other religions, of other races with a condemnatory attitude. We can't. Because what God's done to us doesn't mean that there's things that need to be changed or shaped in our mind or understood clearly or different in other people's minds. But to sit there with a condemnatory attitude is totally inconsistent with this understanding of God's kindness. The last thing I would say is this, is that understanding God's kindness actually leads to these radical displays of kindness that you're not free to do. Let me give you an example. I'm going to have Mikey come on up, and we'll close in some worship. But as he's coming up, listen to this. Let's say you're a billionaire, all right? I know most of you barely even have a dollar in your pocket, but that's all right. Let's just assume for right now. You can let your mind go for just a second. Assume that you're a billionaire. Let's say that somebody that you know, a good friend of yours, comes up to you and says, hey, I'm starting up a business. I need 20 grand to get this thing going. Well, if you have a shred of trust or belief in what they're able to do, even if you even in the back of your mind you think they're they're not going to make it, all right? But, eh, you know, 20000 bucks, no big deal. All right, I'll give it to them. You are actually free to give very generously to people that you may, not, may not, you may not get anything back in your money. You may never get any return back on that. In fact, they may go out and squander it. You may not get anything back. But you're free to give so liberally and so generously because you've got so much. Let me put it this way. When you understand the fact that you have been befriended by God. 
that God has got this bank account so full of kindness and generosity to you that he loves you. He already knows who you are. I mean, talk about God being vulnerable. He's been vulnerable with you. And think about even you being vulnerable with God. You confessing sin, the way that the Bible is going to describe or identify you being vulnerable with God is simply you confessing your stuff to God. When you're vulnerable with God and you realize there is this ocean, ocean of grace made known through the cross to wash you, to cleanse you, to forgive you. When you have had your life filled your bank account filled with acts of kindness from God. Do you know that you can actually now be free to live radically generous, kind lives to other people, even other people that may hurt, hurt you and harm you? Do, you? do you know that when you live like that, you can actually live, take radical risks in investing your lives in other people, even knowing they may take advantage of you? That's what it means to love your enemies. You know that? This is how radically profound the message of the gospel is. This can't be done by superimposing religious moralism over you. Can't do that. But I'll tell you what, people that have been moved by the gospel, people that have received the fact that God through Christ has demonstrated such large amounts of kindness to you, and that he did this to you even when you were still an enemy. Even when you were ungrateful, even when you were still, like Jesus said, just evil, straight up evil, God showed kindness to you. How much more can you take to the bank the fact that God gave his son for you? And live radically generous, kind lives to everybody. You say non-Christians? Of course not Christians. What if the guy's a cultist? Of course if it's a slutty prostitute uh -huh. yeah God loves him we can afford to live like that what if they hurt me do you, do you realize how you've hurt God and yet he continues to show kindness to you your hurt to God is more profound than any hurt anybody will ever bring to you when you realize the level of grace God demonstrated to you, that changes you. It changes you. Let's worship. Let's sing. Because you know what? People who know the kindness of God, they sing. The Bible is even going to talk about how even when the hills and the mountains and the sea know the kindness of God, even they sing. I have no idea what a chorus of a field sounds like to God. But I'll tell you what, when we recognize how great God is, we as God's people redeemed by Jesus' blood, when we sing, there's something that just should come naturally and organically from our praise because we love God. We've been removed by his great kindness. Let's respond. Jesus, we just thank you for the cross. God, we are the filthy people who have not been thankful and full of gratitude, and yet, God, you show great kindness and affection to us in a very general way, but in a very profoundly specific way through the cross. God, we even now, first of all, want to respond to that by confessing sin to you, by coming boldly and humbly before you, and 
missions, worshiping you and loving you. But at the same time, God, we also ask that you would help us to understand how this works its way out in our lives in a very missional way, that we would live on mission, that we would take our lives seriously enough or your life in us seriously enough that we would recognize, God, you have shown great kindness to us so that now, in turn, we can show great kindness to all sorts of people regardless of who they are, regardless of how far gone they are, regardless of what type of pain they may cause to us by us being vulnerable or transparent or sacrificial to them. God, thank you for the cross. Thank you for what you've done for us. And we worship you now.